Good evening and welcome to the, the most recent installment of Building the Scottish State. And I have the good fortune to have with me this evening, uh, Mr. Tim Rideout, who is a specialist of currency and uh, economics in general, and who is going to talk to us about what uh, an independent Scotland could do on a fiscal and uh, monetary uh, basis. So first of all, thank you, Tim, for being with us this evening. Well, thank you for asking me, Mark. I'm so just to begin with, tell us a little bit about your background in economics and finance. Uh, I grew up on the Isle of Man. Uh, where we had a farm and then uh, uh, in the mid-1970s my parents decided to emigrate to South Africa so I finished uh, high school in Cape Town and then went to the University of Cape Town which is you know, one of the world's top hundred universities and uh, I did uh, I did an arts degree which you know, the University of Cape Town was set up by Scots it followed the Scottish system of a four-year honours degree and broad subjects so in the arts faculty I could do any course I wanted and I did three years worth of economics uh, economic history and three years of uh, geography, a few side subjects of statistics, math, computer science, geology, uh, and then um, went on to do honours in economic geography uh, before doing a master's uh, again in Cape Town on uh, the Cape Town Central Business District, and then came to Edinburgh in 1984, the end of 1984, to do a PhD again in economic geography, where I was looking at the effects of planning controls on office development in Edinburgh and Dublin as a comparative study. And, and what did you find? I mean, you told me about your th subject of your thesis, but beyond just what you studied directly, what did you find about economics? What were the big picture lessons that you took from your research? Well, that was quite specific. And, uh, it was basically that uh, a government legislative framework such as the planning system uh, was actually a good thing for property developers in that uh, Individual developers complained like hell because uh, you know if they got a planning permission turned down, but in a free for all like Dublin, where planning permissions were just handed out in you know return for a brown manila envelope, then uh, the developers lost out because they went through huge booms and busts. Whereas mm -hmm. in Edinburgh, individual developers might not get all they wanted, but the regulation of the state ensured that the market was quite stable, didn't sort of overheat too much, didn't collapse. Uh, and whatever. So on the whole, you required both the private sector and effective government intervention and regulation. And so what we'd like to talk about this evening, especially is, depending on how Scotland becomes independent, how would they achieve having a their own currency, uh, monetary policy? It, all of this seems very, you know, uh, very difficult and complicated. Tell us about in your own ideas in, in you know, and how Scotland could have their own currency, have a, have a central bank. Is it easy? Is it complicated? What is necessary in order for that to, to occur in your view? Well, I think before answering that, I'll just tell you a sort of tale about uh, the expert. Becoming an economist or any other sort of expert is a bit like entering the priesthood. What you have to do is to learn the sort of priestly language and the sacred text. Once you've learned those, uh, then in order to make out to everyone else that you're now the expert, you never ever say anything to anyone that they will understand. Because <laughs> you put it into all the jargon and so forth as much as possible, <laughs> just make it obscure. And the less people yeah. understand what you're talking about, the more they assume you're a genius. <laughs> yeah. you know, you, so you need to you need to just sort of understand that uh, uh, you know a lot of what economists talk about is really just hiding uh, the truth so that uh, you know they're kept in the job. Um, I think for Scotland, um, setting up a currency and setting up a central bank is really quite straightforward. Uh, you know, 
I think there's been something like 30 odd countries in the last um, uh, 30, well, since the collapse of the Soviet Union that have set up their own currency in the central bank. None of them had any great trouble about doing it. All the 60 states that uh, you know, obtained independence from Britain since the war have set up a central bank and a currency. Uh, they didn't have any trouble doing that. Um, so a central bank is just, you know, it's a bank where banks keep their money. Uh, it just needs a set of accounts, an accounting system. I mean, you could do it old, the old-fashioned way in a, you know, paper books and ledgers if you wanted. But uh, these days you just buy an accounting package and you simply have to have an account that you maintain for each commercial bank. There's not very many of them. So yeah. an account for the government. So, you're, you know, unlike a normal bank that is dealing with millions of accounts, the central bank's probably only dealing with a few hundred accounts. And you just allow the, you know, the account holders to make deposits and withdrawals and transfers, you know, bet from between those accounts. In terms of creating a currency, I mean, of course, this, Scotland has had the pound or for centuries with, with the English pound, for better or for worse. How difficult do you see, like, just setting up a separate currency, setting up the separate set, the central bank and making it work seamlessly so that people can have their their reserves in British pounds now, but then could be transferred to Scottish pounds and then, you know, maybe float a little bit. But, you know, how, how do you see that in the future, you know, transferring over to a, a different currency? Well, I think it's it's quite straightforward that um, the plan that I've set out uh, would see the um, work start. Preliminary design work has already started on the central bank uh, in, via the Scottish Currency Group. But uh, we can do a certain amount before we get to a referendum, but the you know, in terms of designs, but the main work would start after the referendum. Um, mm -hmm. The central bank would just commission a banknote printer to do the notes and coins. Uh, it's going to set up a, a suitable IT network that could handle the interbank payment system. And we don't have to write that from scratch because we'll just adopt the European standard. So they have a system, I think there's a TIPS Plus and another one that they use for small payments and large payments. They already support multiple currencies. I've had it explained to me that uh, it supports the Danish krona, for example. They just have to add another currency in the form of the Scottish pound. And we have to connect up the banks in Scotland to that network so they can make payments from one to another and to and from the central bank, of course. And therefore, we get to a stage where maybe five, you know, five, six months before Independence Day, the commercial banks would contact you and send you a letter saying, you know, you're a customer that we've identified lives in Scotland. Uh, do you wish to have a Scottish pound account, credit card, so forth? If you write, if you say yes, then they'll set those up for you. If you're Ruth Davidson, you say no. She's going to keep her £320 a day or whatever from the House of Lords in Stirling. So that's fine because it's all voluntary. You don't have to convert any money into the Scottish pound if you don't want to. But two months or so after Independence Day, uh, it'll be like with your when you get a new credit card, it has a start date on it. So, you know, a month or two before the changeover day, you'll get your new cards and pay-in books, checkbooks, whatever else you've asked for, uh, the details for your new internet banking. Uh, and when the day comes, then it'll go live and you'll be able to log in and start making you know, online payments in Scottish pounds and using your new Scottish pound debit card in the shop. You can carry on using the sterling one with, without any penalty for a couple of months. But eventually, the be a fairly short period, the Scottish pound will start to float. The bank is going to start charging you foreign exchange fees if you use a sterling card. You'll find the shop doesn't really want to accept. How do you see that going forward with, with 
either being in the EU or being an EFTA? Or what is your view on that? Our research group, we contacted EFTA and they basically said that Scotland can be an EFTA if they want to, but they have, you know, the, the, the government has to have competence over negotiating treaties and the powers to respect those laws, that kind of thing. But the, the contact I've had with EFTA has been very positive. And that's like, you know, as, as long as you have these competences, you can come on in. But I don't see in the Scottish government much urge. I, I, I don't know how to interpret it, but it's, it's as if they're being dragged down this whole Brexit thing but they're not really doing much about it to mitigate the what, what's going to happen in terms of Brexit. Uh, you know, I don't know what your what your view is, but you're welcome to expound on that. My view, and uh, I think the view of the SNP's Policy Development Committee that I sit on, is that uh, uh, Scotland should aim to be within EFTA from day one of independence, uh, and that that's the sort of realistic position that we could uh, achieve. Rejoining the European Union is a different. And, and, and as I said, I was in direct contact with, uh, you know, with uh, as long as the Scottish Parliament has the authority to negotiate international treaties and the powers to abide by them, they can easily apply and probably get membership in EFTA, which would reconnect Scotland with the European market. I, I hope they consider that. I think there's two things that uh, should happen straight after a vote for independence. And one of those is that Westminster adds Scotland to the Statute of Westminster 1931. The Statute of Westminster was the process by which Canada, South Africa, the Irish Free State, uh, New Zealand, uh, Australia became self-governing. Uh, and the, the Statute of Westminster just says that the Imperial Parliament, and they did call it the Imperial Parliament, no longer passed legislation for the state concerned uh, without the written consent of the Parliament of that state. So this is this is actually a binding thing on Westminster that uh, although they would carry on passing the budget, for example, and other legislation, we would have to agree in writing to any provisions that would apply to Scotland. And the other thing that would happen it would be to use a Section 30 order. And there's a great deal of misunderstanding about what a Section 30 order is. It is not permission to hold a referendum. It's an amendment passed by order in council. So that's the Privy Council to alter what is in the Scotland Act 1998. The, in 2013, or well, the Edinburgh Agreement, the order in council simply transferred power over the constitution temporarily to the Scottish Parliament, and then took it back again in uh, December 2014. So a section 30 order could be used to delete the list of reserved powers, all of them from the Scotland Act. Uh, and that would mean that, when, that the Holyrood Parliament a, it's not going to have Westminster doing things it doesn't want, and B, uh, it can pass legislation in any area. For example, to set up the Scottish Defence Force, uh, to establish the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and to pass the Scottish Reserve Bank Establishment Bill. And how do you view things like, uh, you know, setting up a, a Scottish Defence Force, whether Scotland should be part of NATO? How do you see these things? America is you know, a big backer of the UK and, and Scotland a certain way. Uh, how do you see things like, you know, Faslane, uh, you know, nuclear weapons? Uh... I don't have any hard and fast uh, sort of thoughts on NATO. I think uh, so, long as it, so long as we can um, adopt the position of some other countries and say that we're, we, we wish to be in NATO but not have any involvement with nuclear uh, weapons, fine. If they're going to be difficult about that, then just be neutral. You know, like Sweden or something. 
I think uh, the tridentism has to be removed from first lane. You know, we, we would unquestionably have the power to do that in that um, on Independence Day, the Faslane base becomes the property of the government of Scotland. The UK would have to negotiate an agreement for the continued use of that base. And I would say give them five years, charge them a, you know, a rental for that uh, uh, yeah. period, you know, maybe, I don't know, 50 million a year or something, and require that at the end of that five years, the equipment and missiles and submarines be removed along with any UK forces. Question, would the Scottish Stock Exchange relocate back to Scotland from down south? Or you've talked about a possible Scottish currency. What about a Scottish Stock, stock Exchange? Uh, how do you see that? Would that be a beneficial thing to, the, to Scottish society? Is that something we should avoid? There should be a, a Scottish Stock Exchange. I mean, there was one, but uh, well, in fact, Edinburgh and Glasgow had their own stock exchanges, uh, but they merged with the London Stock Exchange and got closed down. Uh, you know, as has happened repeatedly with uh, Scottish businesses. There have been various proposals. Uh, Michelle Thompson, the MSP for Falkirk, uh, she was involved with a proposal to try and re-establish a stock exchange, but it didn't happen. Having our own currency would make it much easier to have our own stock exchange uh, because then, you know, companies which operate in Scotland, Diageo, for example, they could then get a listing in Scottish pounds on the Scottish stock exchange. Uh, and people would be able to buy and sell shares in Scottish pounds. Whereas at the moment, you know, without a Scottish stock exchange, then you'd be investing in a foreign currency in London. Yeah. How easy is that to do? I mean, you, you think of, oh, you know, setting up a stock exchange, whether it's the, you know, the FTSE or the, you know, the Dow Jones. Oh, that must be so complicated. Is it? How easy is it to do these things? Because it's always presented as something very complicated, you know, oh, well, Scotland, they couldn't possibly have their own stock exchange. The stock exchange is just a market for, you know, it's all it's all over the computer system. So it just allows people to, you know, to, to companies can list their shares on the stock exchange and then people can open an account with, a, you know, via a stockbroker or something like that, that uh, then allows them to deal on that stock exchange and the exchange makes some money as a commission out of, uh, you know, the fees they charge the companies to be listed and the the transaction charges for uh, whatever you buy and sell. It's not difficult. I think the, the difficulty is being economically viable in that you have to have enough companies that wish to list on the exchange and enough people that wish to buy and sell to make it, you know, that, that your income as the stock exchange is big enough uh, to cover the sort of infrastructure costs and, you know, your staff and so forth. That's where having our own currency makes it much more viable because we then have much less competition from London. Do you think that Scotland can kind of avoid that America-centric vision of uh, how the the uh, international financial order works? No, I mean, you know, we're, we're going to be subject to the international order. So you know, I, I expect Scotland would join the World Bank. The Scottish Reserve Bank would join the Bank for International Settlements. The Scottish Reserve Bank would have its accounts at the European Central Bank, at the US Fed and so forth. You know, when the UK, for example, has dollar reserves they're not the dollar reserves are not in london they're in new york in the u.s fed yeah, sure, sure. Dollars. the same thing would happen to scotland you know we we would have dollar reserves we would keep them in new york at the u.s fed so we're not going to avoid the international system but i think the u.s centric nature is under challenge you know the chinese are challenging it very strongly to what extent do you think that scotland should become involved in the U.S. system. I mean, do you see a U.S. a U.S. centric system maybe going by the wayside, and Scotland being able to join some other? 
be more tied to the euro than the dollar. The, the technical the infrastructure systems that uh, we're proposing for the Scottish Reserve Bank are based on the design of the eurozone. If we did rejoin the European Union and say in you know 10, 15 years time we wanted to join the euro, uh, you know that that we would be 100% compliant uh, with the technical necessities for doing that. I don't recommend joining the euro, but uh, certainly not at the moment. But uh, you know we we would be orientated towards Europe and not the US. Sure. And what is necessary to set up a currency and to get for Scotland to get on their way to either joining the uh, EFTA or the EU and especially gaining independence, getting the capacity to join other international organizations and doing so uh, in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's uh, the EU or, you know, the UN, how, how do you see these things going forward? Well, the, the UN is simple. We, you know, the, we'd become a member of the UN on the, on Independence Day. The European Union is uh, is a difficult one, even with the European Union falling over backwards to help Scotland, which they probably will. Uh, it would take four years after independence before you could possibly rejoin. I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that, I think the first minister sort of very, rather naive in saying, "Oh, we're just going to rejoin the EU because we won't." I've spoken to people from EFTA and they're like, as long as you can, as long as the Scottish government can negotiate treaties and has the powers to abide by them, they can pretty easily join EFTA and rejoin the, the common well, market. That's the important bit because then, you know, the, uh, all this, we, we're then back in things like the Erasmus scheme. We'll have to be like Ireland. We'll need direct ferry links from Scotland to Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands. Uh, and then things like the shellfish, it will just go straight from Scotland to, well, probably to Belgium or somewhere, uh, and on to France and Spain, and we'll just bypass the uh, you know, the rest of the UK. Exactly. Yeah. Has uh, Doctor Ryder um, read Mark Blight's book Enigmics, uh, or heard Mark's take on our currency and uh, uh, when we're independent? Uh, he's well worth paying attention to. Do you have any comments on that? Or I'm aware of the book, but I haven't read it aware of Mark Blythe. I think he still has a little bit to go on currency for Scotland, but uh, you know, I think uh, he's now on uh, Kate Forbes' new panel of advisors. And uh, you know, I think Mark actually is based in the US and uh, is a professor at a US university. So he probably has a little bit of catching up to do on getting familiar with the situation in Scotland and uh, what needs to be done. But I think uh, he's quite close to my position on currency. Next question, uh, what assets of ours are in the Bank of England? And maybe we can just expand this a little bit more. Imagine there was a, you know, some kind of referendum. The Scots voted yes to become independent. How do you see the you know, negotiation of assets and liabilities between England and Scotland, uh, you know, given 300 years or so of, of being part of the same union? Basically, there's not much to negotiate. Um, that might seem surprising, but uh, the UK has already said that under the Vienna Conventions, for example, the 1978 Convention, uh, it wishes to be the continuing state. Back to when the Soviet Union collapsed, then uh, Russia, the Russian Federation was the continuing state, and uh, Estonia, Latvia, etc., were all completely new states. Uh, under international law, two things that could happen. One, the old state disappears and the new countries all get a share of its assets. Or in the continuing state model, the continuing state keeps all the assets and liabilities apart from what is um, within the, the territory of 
at the new state. Mm -hmm. And the uh, UK has already made clear in 2014, uh, there's a whole um, uh, paper they produced about it saying that they intend to be the continuing state. No, no as usual, no discussion uh, about that. Uh, they just said, we are going to be the continuing state, whether you like it or not. And they will always do that because if the if you went down the other route of dividing the assets and liabilities, then the, the UK as a state in international law ceases to exist, which means the UN Security, seat, Security Council seat becomes vacant and would be reallocated to somebody else. And I'm afraid that's not going to be acceptable to the UK. You know, the, the rest of the UK, they'd also have to reapply to the, United, to the United Nations, which means they'd be treated as a new state subject to the non-proliferation treaty and uh, so forth and, and no longer member you know a permanent uh, a member of the you know the security council yeah all of that would disappoint it's probably the biggest reason they don't want scotland to go i mean that's i, I think it's yeah. up there so if they're going to be the continuing state that means that they keep the un seat they keep all the military equipment and so forth they keep the falkland islands and tristan da Cunha and they keep all the embassies and they also keep any debts and so forth. So the national debt stays in London. And they also have to pay the pensions of UK civil servants, not Scottish government civil servants, but you know anyone who's been a UK civil servant or uh, ex-UK forces or things like that. Sure, sure. Uh, what is in Scotland? So any UK, any UK property in Scotland, so the the big new Union Jack adorned building in central Edinburgh becomes the property of the Scottish government because it's here. Faz Lane becomes property of the Scottish government. Uh, the UK is welcome, is you know, is allowed to remove any movable property. So if they have some, you know, fighter jets, missiles, submarines, paintings, things like that, they can take those away. What assets of ours are in the Bank of England? Whether there's a currency union or not a currency union, I, I you know I have no idea. But how do you see that in terms of dealing with the Bank of England? You know, at the well at under the, the continuing state model, we're not entitled to anything from the Bank of England. Uh, but I wouldn't um, you know I wouldn't worry about that because uh, there isn't very much. The UK's foreign reserves, which is basically what we're talking about, the you know the gold, dollars, euros, whatever that the UK has in August 2020. The total value was 88 billion US dollars. So that's not very much. When the, you set it against the fact that there's 3.3 trillion of sterling, then if you liquidated the UK, you'd get two US cents per pound. And it, uh, if, if you were going to try and claim 8% of the value of the Bank of England, you're talking about 8% of 88 billion, uh, which you know comes down to about, uh, that's dollars. So that comes down to about 7 billion pounds, which is neither here nor there. Uh, and we don't need it anyway, because when you introduce the new currency, you don't give it away free of charge. Everyone who wants a Scottish pound is going to have to pay for it with a sterling pound. So I, I estimate that on the you know, first day or two of the new currency, something of the order of 40 billion Scottish pounds would be sold into existence. And that means that the Scottish Reserve Bank gets 40 billion sterling. It paid in for those Give us a scenario of how that could happen. You know, I mean, I, you know, let's just say Scotland will be independent or have a vote for independence within the next couple of years. What should we be doing or what can be done now to set up a central bank that'll be, you know, that'll be available to everybody, that everybody could have an account in the central bank? No, no, only, only we wouldn't have accounts at the central bank. The, the central bank would just do accounts for the banks and the government. Okay. And for other central banks 
so as I say, it, would have, you know, it might have less than a thousand accounts. The commercial banks, you know, we would keep our accounts at the commercial banks, such as uh, the Bank of Scotland or uh, these, um, the Royal Bank of Scotland. And incidentally, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland, you know, it's still a bank. Uh, it's still headquartered in St Andrews Square in Edinburgh, and it basically doesn't do any business outside Scotland these days. Okay. It's it's a part of the NatWest Group. But you know, one one thing that annoys me, people always forget. You know, they talk about NatWest. Oh, what are you going to do about NatWest? It's too big. But it, NatWest Group is not a bank. It's a holding company. It mm -hmm. owns lots of banks. It owns. Ulster Bank, for example, it owns the Isle of Man Bank, it owns Coots and Company, the Queen's Bank, and it owns Royal Bank of Scotland. What were Royal Bank branches in England have all closed down, and they're now they're now either part of NatWest Bank or they just don't exist. You know, I looked at this recently. So, the Royal Bank of Scotland is 11% of the NatWest Group. Basically, it's all Scottish, uh, and so that that is going to be uh, the biggest bank in Scotland when we're independent. If Scotland were to become independent tomorrow, what you know, with the banks and with the financial systems, what would Scotland be, you know, obliged to take on and what could they shed? I know that's a kind of a vague question, but. Well, we, we inherit the banks which are uh, registered in Scotland. So that would be um, things like the, the Royal Bank, with, uh, the Clydesdale Bank, which belongs to Virgin Money, but it's still, Clydesdale Bank is still legally a separate bank. It publishes its mm. own accounts every year. Uh, the Bank of Scotland is legally a Scottish bank, publishes its own accounts, even though it's owned by Lloyd's Group. Tesco Bank is actually a Scottish bank because it's headquartered in Edinburgh. But any bank that um, uh, is operating in both countries, let's take Santander UK, they will have to split into two companies. So there would be Santander UK and Santander Scotland. Mm -hmm. And the English customers go into Santander UK and the Scottish customers go into Santander Scotland, which would be a separate company, but all owned by Santander in Madrid. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Santander Scotland would be a registered bank at the Scottish Reserve Bank based in Scotland. A Scottish company would do its accounts in Scottish pounds uh, and it's going to provide accounts in the Scottish pound. Uh, if you want a sterling account, then you would get that from Santander RUK. And, and do you see it as being relatively simple to set this up? How do you respond to that of like, oh, well, it's, you know, you're setting up a currency, it's too complicated. Uh... It's, it's complete nonsense. The, the city of Bristol set up the Bristol pound and uh, I don't have one, but I've seen that, they, you know, they had proper banknotes printed. You know, they're, they're the same sort of quality as, uh, say, the Scottish banks do. They're, you know, five pound note, 10 pound note, whatever, and you can spend them in Bristol and you can go to the city council and you can change them into sterling or, you can take sterling and change it into the Bristol pound. You know, the city council in Bristol can do it. Surely Scotland could manage it. Assuming Scotland is able to, you know, in the next, let's just say three years, have the opportunity to set up a, a Scottish pound, how would the, the exchange rate work? Would you base it on kind of pegging it to the third pound sterling for the time being? And the, the Scottish pound would be created at one-to-one -one against sterling. I mean, there, there is an argument for, say, lopping off a zero and having um, uh, 10 pounds sterling to one pound Scots because, you know, we are in a situation where a pound, you know, when I was at school in 1971, I could, at the tuck shop, I could get uh, a fizzy drink, pack of crisps and a chocolate bar for five pence, which is one <laughs> shilling. So, you know, the pound's gone a bit down the toilet in terms of value. 
but I think that, that uh, we can't do that. So we'll just have to have it as one-to-one. -one. Uh, there'll be a transition period of about two months or so uh, when uh, you can exchange sterling into the Scottish pound free of charge and at the what guaranteed one-to-one -one rate. And if that period will then end. And after that, the Scottish pound will float on the foreign exchange market. Uh, it'll find its own value. And if you if you you know if you're what I call a late exchanger, you've been a bit canny and waited to see what happens, uh, and you've kept all your savings in sterling. You will then find that you get subject to a foreign exchange fee uh, when you you either ask your bank to convert them into Scottish pounds, or if you use a you know a sterling debit card or credit card, it would be the same as if you're in Spain. You find that um, you know your your statement says you've purchase something in Scottish pounds, which has been converted back to sterling at such and such an exchange rate, and plus two and a half percent foreign exchange fee for the bank director's Christmas bonus fund. It will become inconvenient to keep your savings in sterling. So therefore, there'll be a, there'll be sort of, you know, people who are enthusiastic about the Scottish pound who will change their money immediately. There'll be a large tail of people who sort of, you know, wait a few weeks to see what happens. And there'll be still a quite a lot who sort of, you know, do nothing at all during the two month fixed period. And then over the next couple of years, gradually change their uh, their sterling into the Scottish pound. And what that does by making it all voluntary and a gradual process like that, is it means that there's a guaranteed demand in the foreign exchange market for Scottish pounds. So there will not be many sellers. The only sellers are gonna be people who are trying to pay for imported goods or going on holiday. And there's a lot of in fact, there's going to be something like um, be about uh, 140 billion pounds worth of pounds, sterling pounds that we own, which is not exchanged in the first few days and which will follow over the next two years. So that's a that's a huge demand for the Scottish pound against a quite small uh, supply. So the, the Scottish Reserve Bank or the Scottish government are going to have to keep creating new Scottish pounds in order to accommodate that. Influx. I was raised on the idea that if the government is going to spend money, they have to get money from the taxpayers. So you know, every year there's a certain amount paid in tax, there's a certain amount that's spent by the government, and there's a huge gap, and that's, so that's the deficit. And so there's this idea that all of government spending needs to be covered by taxes. But I have the idea that sovereign governments could just create you know, money like that. You know, what's termed the sort of neoliberal narrative, so that's the sort of right-wing um, sort of uh, monetarist, Reaganite sort of uh, trickle-down sort of school of people really came out of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of sure. Economics. The narrative that it's taxpayers' money, you know, it never was taxpayers' money. The, you know, before the 1970s, nobody talked about taxpayers' money. It was the public purse. It was yeah. public... Uh, and you know, there is no such thing as taxpayers' money. Any taxpayer who creates their own money will get done for forgery. So uh, it's the government's money. It's the people's money. You know, we put the government in place to provide the services that the, you know, that the state provides to us, which is a lot. And it, you know, the the public purse is property of the people. All this taxpayers' money business was an attempt to privatise money and say it's not really the people's money. It belongs to some billionaire somewhere, and we're dependent yeah. on this gratitude. The way that things work is that you have to spend first. You know, spending comes first and tax comes at the end. And, uh, you know, if you don't believe that, it's, it's very obvious when you're looking at a new country. If Scotland now becomes independent, a new country, there are no Scottish 
if the Scottish government wants Scottish pounds, how can they get them from taxpayers who don't have any? You know, yeah. it's impossible. The only way that the Scottish pound comes to into existence is by the government spending it. And in this case, they spend it to buy our sterling. And then they will spend more to pay the wages of the civil service and um, set up the Ministry of Defence and all the rest of it. So, you know, spend comes first, taxes at the end of the process. There's standard policy in the British Empire when a new territory was conquered. You know, let's mm -hmm. say we conquered Nigeria in the late 19th century. So the colonial administrators say, right, what we need, we need a house for the governor and we need some roads. And they have a look around and they see some guys tilling the fields, growing maize, and say, oi, you lot, come and build this house and make the roads for us. And the farmers say, no, sod off, you know, what, what are we going to do that for? Well, we'll give you some shillings, you know, these nice shiny coins with the queen across the water on the, on the no, we don't want those, what do we want shiny bits of metal for? They're no use here. So the colonial officials got a problem. So they send, they call for the army, they send the army in and they go and tell all the farmers, right, you've got one year to come up with 12 shillings in tax. Otherwise, we're going to come back and burn your house down. Now the colonial official goes back and says, well, I've got 12 shillings here. And if you spend a year building my road and my house, then I'll give them to you. And that's how you create a currency. You spend it and wow. you force people to use it by levying tax on them. If I was to say to you, OK, uh, I have the authority, um, create a Scottish currency within the next five years that's functional. Could you do that? The key thing is the central bank and getting the notes and coins made. And uh, you know, it takes a, a year to 18 months to get the no notes and coins done. So that's the most time consuming part of the process. You know, it's not it's not difficult, but uh, you know, getting your security features right and making sure that the Scottish pound coin isn't the same size as the one cent Thai bat. Or sure, whatever, sure. Uh, you know, it takes a while and it, you know, it has to be usable by blind people and, you know, all sure. work in the... Um, vending machines and all this sort of stuff. So there's about 18 months of work that can be done in preparation before a referendum. So we really should be starting now. And I'm trying to get that off the ground. And that's just designed okay. on the central bank and you know, getting tender documents and sort of things like that. Uh, there's then about two and a half years work up to before the central bank is in a position to launch the currency uh, that would take place after the referendum. Uh, most people seem to think it's going to be between two years and three years between the referendum and an Independence Day. So that works fine. And it will then be ready to go. The, the key thing is to make the currency success. Uh, that um, although transferring your savings into the Scottish pound is voluntary, from the currency day when the currency is switched on, all Scottish government payments and receipts will be in Scottish pounds. Mm -hmm. So if you work for the civil service or the council or somebody like that, the Scottish, the, you know, the Scottish health service, fire brigade, whatever, you are going to be paid in Scottish pounds and you're going to get a choice about that. Okay. And equally, all tax uh, will be paid in Scottish pounds. So, you know, Ruth Davison turning up with her £300 from the House of Lords to pay the council tax uh, will find that it will not be accepted. Just yeah. as you know, if you go to HMRC and say you wish to pay your income tax bill in US dollars, they will not accept that. Yeah, uh, it has to be paid in sterling. Same applies in Scotland. You know, any tax uh, fines for speeding tickets, whatever, they will have to be paid in the Scottish pounds, and they will not accept sterling. Okay, and 
is it that easy? Is it that complicated? I, I, I'm just trying to get a sense of it. You know, I mean, because it, it always seems like, oh, you know, setting up a, a new, you know, a new currency that would be so difficult. And what you're saying is is, is completely logical. But the reason why it's a bit difficult is because um, most currency these days is not banknotes and coins. It's uh, digital uh, in bank account uh, computer systems. You know, if yeah. we didn't have bank accounts, it would be dead easy. All we'd have to do is take your note, you take your notes and coins around to the post office or something, uh, hand them in, get the new ones, and we'd all be converted to the Scottish pound in a day or two. But uh, because it's mostly digital, then you need to have the appropriate IT systems and the software and the you know, connections to the central bank uh, and make sure that that works without being you know, hacked or um, uh, falling over because of some software problem or, or something like that. Can you explain how the exchange rate would work? Let's just say, let's just say that there was a, a Scottish pound set up relative to the the uk you know uh, pound sterling they were equal at the at the beginning they were pegged at the beginning how could you see that thing of uh, how could you see that evolving the scottish reserve bank would keep the peg for about two months uh, and then they would uh, uh, allow the scottish pound to float which basically means it goes up and down on the foreign exchange market depending on supply and demand so it's, it's simply a matter of how many people wish to buy the Scottish pound versus how many wish to sell the Scottish pound. And you know, for people who talk about speculators and the international markets and things like that, at the start, they don't have any Scottish pounds. You know, it's kind of difficult to deal in something which you haven't got. So, you know, they're not in a position to sell Scottish pounds because they don't have them. They'd have to buy them first. Yeah. Uh, what, they, what people at this point, you know, the um, unionists would always start screaming is, Oh, but you know futures contracts. Yeah, you can you can you can go into a futures contract and you can uh, uh, short sell a Scottish pound. So you you know you, you don't have any Scottish pounds, but you agree to deliver a billion Scottish pounds in say six months' time. Uh, so that's a futures contract. So you're you know you're you're conducting a sale now, which will actually only take place in six months' time. And that will affect the, the market price of the Scottish pound because it looks like somebody is selling it. But you have to deliver on the contract. Well, firstly, there's a question is, do I actually have a billion pounds in order to buy the, uh, the Scottish pounds in six months time when I have to sure. deliver my customer? So, you know, the dealer may well ask you to put up collateral or some sort of guarantee that you can fulfill the contract. And if you can't fulfill the contract, you're going to get a penalty because uh, yeah. you've faulted. And what you're hoping is that uh, the day before you have to deliver your Scottish pounds, you can buy them more cheaply than you sold them. But that's obviously a gamble. And, uh, you know, if the Scottish Reserve Bank saw that the Scottish pound was going down a bit, they could use some of their foreign reserves to intervene in the market and push it back up. You know, in which case you end up with what's called the bear trap, where the speculators get a bloody nose because, uh, you know, they find that they can't buy the currency that they need to deliver on their contracts. And, there's a mad scramble and they all end up losing money. And that's what happened with oil, if you remember, in April 2020, when people were so desperate to give away oil that they'd um, uh, agreed to accept delivery of, uh, that they ended up paying people to take it away. I think the yeah. oil price went to minus $30 a barrel at one point. Uh, so those speculators lost a fortune. Would following an Icelandic model not be better for Scotland? I, I, maybe in terms of EU or EFTA, uh, how, how do you see Scotland in, in Europe 
in the future? And do you think that EFTA would be EFTA EEA would be a better route or trying to become a member of the European Union? I, I would I would advocate the Norway position. So that's that's in EFTA and the European Economic Area, uh, but uh, not in the EU. So that we retain control over fisheries, for example. Uh, that basically gives you you know most of the advantages of the European Union without some of the disadvantages. Shortly after independence, we should have a second referendum, and that should ask people if if we should apply to join the European Union. Yeah, I think the answer to that would be yes. So then there begins a four-year process of negotiation with the European Union, uh, but that's not straightforward because. And 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 uh, joining EFTA would be relatively straightforward. I actually had conversations with the. Uh, we could be in the Norway position from Independence Day. Yeah, yeah, I agree. By going down the statute of Westminster and uh, removing the list of reserved powers route, then during the two-year transition period, the Scottish government can negotiate treaties. Uh, yeah. And you know, deal with uh, an application to EFTA, for example. But what people need to remember is we've lost all the UK's opt-outs, and we're not. Yeah. Gonna, we're unlikely to get them back. So. You know, if we rejoin the EU, we have to follow EU VAT rules, and that means 5% VAT on everything. So, you know, you're immediately talking about a 5% increase in the cost of food, children's clothes, books, newspapers, things like that. You know, that's not going to be very popular. Uh, we'd have to go in back into the fisheries policy, which, again, that's not going to be popular with some people. You know, and there's all sorts of other snags along the way. So I don't think it's straightforward to negotiate rejoining the EU. Mm -hmm. But do you think it's worth it? I would go, uh, but I think we might at the end of the four years decide that the offer wasn't really quite acceptable and we just stay as Norway does. What else would you like to say? Well, I think in terms of the you know other questions people always ask. So, you know, they, they talk about the border between Scotland and uh, the rest of the UK. And obviously in 2014, that would have been easy because we were all in the single market and there would have been no need for any controls or restrictions. Uh, unfortunately, and you know it's not our fault; it's the rest of the UK's fault. You know, with them going off to a, a hard Brexit position, turning that border into a, a, what's going to be the end edge of the European single market, then there are going to have to be some controls. Uh, we're still in the 1922 common travel area, so nobody's going to need a visa or work permit. Uh, but we will have exactly the same as the, whatever happens in the end with Northern Ireland. Yeah. So, you want to know what the border between Scotland and England will look like, it'll look exactly the same as the border between Northern Ireland and England. Yeah. And how do you see that working out? The, you know, the, the, the Northern Ireland protocol, the, the dispute between the EU and the UK over that? Well, I think, I think everyone, uh, you know, every other country can see that the UK negotiates in bad faith uh, and can't be trusted on, on its agreements. But that's not new. The UK signed a tripartite agreement with Ukraine in, uh, uh, was it, I think, 1993 or something, when uh, Ukraine agreed to give up the nuclear weapons that it inherited from the Soviet Union. The UK and the US and Ukraine signed an agreement that, that we would guarantee the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And when Russia invaded the Crimea, what did the UK do? Absolutely nothing. So, you know, <laughs> so they, you know they, didn't, they didn't follow their agreements uh previously and so it's not new um but uh, i think you know they're going to discover that the european union does not get messed around you know if the uk is going to be silly then they'll just get tra trodden on you know they 
Well, yeah, they're going to be hauled in. They're going to be hauled into international court if they don't abide by their international agreements. For example, the Irish Protocol. You know, we'll see how that works out. But uh, I, I, the British aren't used to that. They're they're so they've been so they've bestrided the world in their imperial gowns for so long, and they're just not used to playing second fiddle to anything. <laughs> no, I was hearing a story the other day about. Uh, I think one of the early um, uh, cross-channel um, sort of booze cruise type things and some guy yeah. goes, goes off to Boulogne and he's walking down the high street and uh, saying, yeah, why is this bloody place so full of foreigners? No, I mean, but, you know, if the, if the European Union simply said that we will not allow Euro, Eurozone financial transactions to take place outside the European Union, then, uh, you know, that would, they could just take away half of London's business at a stroke. The UK is—it's not in a strong position at all. It's a—it's a weak position. No, exactly, exactly. I mean, they can't demand anything, you know. And I remember, you know, them saying, "Oh, we'll get another deal with uh, uh, India and you know, and Australia and New Zealand." You know, the kind of the you know, recreating the empire or something like that. And it's not like you know, India or Australia has any great desire to get back with the UK in terms of this you know, kind of empire type relationship it's but i'm sure that the you know in in the kind of the british imperial mentality oh they love us every you know the australians love us we were their colonial masters for so long of course they'll want to sign big free trade free trade deals with us but i don't see it that way <laughs> okay well we'll leave it at that but uh, thank you so much for being with us this evening and we'll uh, i hope to have you back soon you're very welcome